Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me. Uh, you know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it's time for another episode of the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Reed. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I get to sit here every week. And because of our sponsors, Website Amp and the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino, um, I get to just kind of hang out here and talk to fun people in the world of poker. Um, so before we get started, I just want to thank um, a couple premium members that have joined up that really help us out around here by pledging their 15 bucks a month. Um, right at the top of the list, Pat Berry, who I was having fun with on Twitter today. Uh, Pat, you've been a member for a while, and I don't see you uh, as often in the strategy conversations that I'm involved in, but it's great having your support. It helps us out a lot, and I hope you're off enjoying a, uh, a little Johnny Black right now. So thanks, Pat. And um, I want to get to our guest today, the one and only Alec Torelli. If you don't know who he is, why are you listening to this podcast? You can't be a fan of poker if you don't know who Alec Torelli is. Um, he's, he's the man around campus. He's been all over the poker world for years, and uh, we're glad to have him back on the Rec Poker Podcast. Alec, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, everyone, and uh, appreciate your guys' support. It's fun to be back. Talk poker, of course. It's like you said, we're, we're, we're really lucky to be able to talk poker um, uh, during the day. So thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks for your support. And uh, for those of you watching on video, I'm walking on a treadmill. I'm actually going to a poker game today uh, in a few hours, and we played like 16 hours straight. So I, I end up sitting for a very long time. And so um, I get my steps in while I do interviews, Twitter spaces, coaching calls, Zoom calls, whatever. So uh, yeah, thanks for bearing with me. I love that. I have a standing desk that I work at sometimes, but I'm just waiting to get into that treadmill mode because I'm a multitasker too. And there's just not enough hours in the day, is there? Yeah. I mean, I think at, you know, an A1 walking pad, they're like four or 500 bucks and you can, uh, you know, you, you start off at like a mile an hour, but you know, if you do an hour zoom call, you walk an extra mile. So right. if you're on zoom three, four hours a day, uh, you know, that's five, 10,000 steps a day. You, you, you add, uh, it really adds up and, you know, in a digital world that I think it really helps. So. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about that's that's a great segue, but I'm not going to take it because I want to talk a bit about like life balance and how you fit poker in with being a professional and that kind of stuff. But first, if uh, some of our listeners don't haven't heard of you already, how do you describe your own place in the poker world? Um, I wouldn't really say I'm in the poker world, even though I think I've, um, you know, done done a lot in poker and I've, I've you know, played at a very high level and, and competed at a high level throughout my career. But um, I would say like, even throughout my career, even, even when I was playing the most amount of poker I've ever played, I was always like a part-time full-time player. Um, so I would like dive in and out of the poker world. I'd kind of have one foot in and one foot out and, uh, I'd play for, you know, like when I, uh, well, I, my, a little bit of my backstory, I'll do a 30 second version. I, uh, started playing in 2003 with, with the moneymaker boom. Uh, I, I, um, went professional in 2005. So I've been playing for about 20 years now, uh, total and, um, started traveling bit of 50 countries, played in all the biggest cash games tournaments in the world. Um, and mainly played high stakes cash throughout my career. That was my main focus, even though I've, I've played a few tournaments done well. in in some of the ones I've played, but my main focus has always been, uh, the, the deep stack live high stakes cash games. Um, and so I moved to Macau and lived there for three years. Um, of course they had some, you know, the, the famous big game. I was part of that. And with all the the Asian uh, crew, the businessmen out there. Uh, so I played that game for three years. And, um, but even during that whole time to get, to get back to your question, like, um, you know, when I was in, in poker playing there and, and 
uh, or, or in Vegas or Australia where I lived for a while, like I was always part-time in poker and then part-time out of poker. So I would, you know, be full-time in poker for like, let's say a month or two months or six weeks, or, you know, we're in Macau, we do 30 days at a time because of my visa. Then we'd go, mm. you know, take a trip somewhere else for, for pleasure or, or to work. Uh, you know, I have an online business that I run as well uh, and, and a poker brand. So like I would get outside the poker world for a while. And I think for me, that's like a really good balance because it's, it's, um, it's very draining and intensive to be in poker full time. And you get a little bit jaded and warped, I think, to be like full time in poker dealing with, you know, especially when you're playing, uh, or at least for me, when I'm playing um, certain stakes games, like you just kind of, you know, the numbers kind of get, uh, get crazy and it's, it's a little jaded. So I like to like be back in reality for a while too. So I'm like, you know, I'll dive into poker for, you know, months at a time and then I'll leave for three, four months and come back. And it also kind of helps me stay fresh. And I think taking a break from poker really reignites that excitement mm. and passion. And, um, you know, especially competing a lot and playing a lot for, for, you know, 15, 20 years, it's like, you need to rekindle that energy every so often and taking a break really helps, helps do that for me, come back with a fresh mindset and always be learning and, and staying excited about the game. Yeah. And especially, you know, any, anything, if you do it nonstop competitively in a high stress environment, you're going to burn out, you know, you're going to lose a love for it. It's always been important to uh, us at rec poker that no matter, you know, how hard we're working at things, it has to be fun. Like we have to keep that love of the game, um, which is easier totally. for us as recreational players. I mean, um, so, so I want to talk a bit about that for you. So you take some time That's away, That's a good get point. back into it. Yeah. How do you, how do you kind of manage that? How, how important is it to love it as a professional in that way? And, uh, yeah, I, and how I do think you that's like that? really the most important thing, you know, like if you, uh, anytime poker feels like, you know, a job or, or it feels like something that you're, you're not wanting to be at the table for any reason. I mean, you could also not want to be at the table because, you know, you're losing or you're tired or you're stuck or it's late or you, you know, you're not playing in the best game or like, there's a lot of, you know, myriad of factors, right? But there's a lot of reasons why people play poker, even though they don't actually want to be in the game. Mm. Um, or if they feel forced to play or they're trying to make their hourly rate or whatever it is. And those are the times that people play the worst. But, you know, I bet everyone listening could relate to the experience of being like super fired up to play. Maybe it's like a Friday or Saturday, you know, you're done with work for the week and, you know, you're just, you're, you've been waiting all week to play on Saturday. You've been studying during the week or you listen to rec poker or you watch YouTube videos, uh, you know, training site or coaching, whatever you do. And then like when Saturday comes, you're just like, I cannot wait to play poker. You know, I'm going to break legs and take names and, and you just are pumped up. Right. And then you play your best. Um, yes. And so keeping that energy uh, is one thing when, you know, you play once a week on a Saturday, it's a little bit easier to do because the natural balance of life makes it easier to be excited about something you do infrequently, but something that you do very frequently in a high stress environment, you know, like swinging lots of money, like every day. And it just gets like, uh, it's draining. So I think always keeping that freshness is really, is really the the challenge of, of, a, of a long-term, uh, relationship with poker. And I think the way to do that is to always be learning. So every time that, mm. you, you know, poker gets stagnant it's because it gets boring it's typically because people stop learning and they just feel like they're on autopilot making the same decisions over and over again without really thinking deeply about the situation but anytime there's an opportunity to be be creative or expressive or to learn something in the game then i think it's easier to stay excited and keep it fresh and so for me at this you know at this point i mean there's always more that i don't know than what i do know even after <laughs> yes. my my entire career in poker i always try and keep that my feet on the ground and keep that approach. So it's like, okay, what can I learn? Uh, everyone does something well at the table, even if, you know, even if they're, they're not professional players, everyone does something well. And so I try to learn something from everyone and take little bits and pieces from everyone's strategy and game um, and always be learning. Mm. 
I see our uh, a member of our wrecking crew here, Kim uh, Pet Bet Kilroy, is joining us. So I'll give her a chance to uh, ask any questions she likes. Yeah, before, sure. Hi, Kim. Um, so Alec, uh, that, so now when you're learning, like us, recreational players, even serious recreational players, there's some low hanging fruit when it comes to things we can learn, mistakes we can learn from. Um, when you've been playing as long as you have, it seems like the the diminishing returns must kick in. Like if, like it must be. Right. How do you continue to find things to learn? And can you talk a little bit about what it's what it's like to study uh, in your life? Like like wh- how do you actively try and get better at poker when you've already mastered so much of the game? Yeah, it's definitely diminishing return. If you think about uh, everyone here is probably pretty good at speaking English. But if you started learning Italian tomorrow, you would learn a lot very quickly. But at the point where your Italian got as good as your English, it would be hard to learn. You know, you'd have to go in the dictionary and learn a new word and, you know, repeat that word several times and then articulate it through a sentence and then, you know, practice it in a speech and write down, write it down. And, and then that would only get you one more word. And then you would use that esoteric word like not that often. Right. I mean, how even even the word esoteric, right. People might know what it means. I mean, you know, but but it's like you don't use that word that often. So imagine adding one more word like esoteric to your, your vocabulary and then you use it, you know, maybe once a day. And you, what do you speak? Ten thousand words in a day. So, I mean, you could see that this there's this diminishing return. And that's kind of like what it is to to study poker uh, over time is that eventually, you know, you might be running a hour long sim a simulation where you're using a poker AI to help you determine the optimal betting line. And it might be a situation that you're in, you know, once a week and that EV difference, right? The expected value of your, your SIM might decide that you're going to make an extra big blind or two big blinds or three big blinds in expected value in that one SIM. But that's, that's the diminishing utility of studying after years. But the low hanging fruit would be, I don't know where everyone is on their journey, but if you just think about it, like a language, you know, you could either be fluent in a language if you're a you know keynote speaker, or you can be learning a language. Like if you fly to Italy for the first time and you want to speak, you don't know how you don't have a vocabulary. People are probably somewhere in between that when it comes to their poker journey. Um, but the, the 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 thing is that like you learn the most in the beginning when you have the least base of knowledge. So studying in the beginning, if you're listening to the show, you're probably a wrecked poker player. That the studying for, for for someone at that point in their journey has massive utility because if you only know a hundred or a thousand words of a language and then you learn another thousand you doubled your knowledge right so um i think the low-hanging fruit of things to study is in order like the 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 the, the most basic uh thing is 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 your preflop starting hands um your preflop ranges if you go to consciouspoker.com you could download our preflop charts they're free we also have a quick start guide to preflop play that helps people like implement the starting range charts because especially if you're you know, in, in the rec poker category, playing with rec poker players, they're not all following the preflop charts that we advise, you know, studying game theory, optimal poker. So how do you adjust those charts? How do you adjust your preflop starting strategy based on the games that you're actually playing in? If you're playing in a home game or, you know, a one, three game at your local casino, you know, the preflop starting hands that while they do work, they, they could be adjusted and optimized to have a higher expectation. So our preflop guide helps people with that. It's just free at consciouspoker.com. Um, that's like the biggest low-hanging fruit. And the reason it's the biggest low-hanging fruit is because it's the decision you make all the time, right? The first, you don't always make river decisions in poker. You always make preflop decisions, right? So you make the most of those preflop decisions. And if you screw up your preflop decisions, that mistake compounds throughout the hand. So it's the decisions you make over and over and over again that ultimately lead to 
um, your life and your, your habits, your success, right? Like if you think about your diet, if, if you change, you know, if you change what you eat out at a restaurant once a week, it's not as big of a impact as changing what you eat every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Cause you repeat those habits every single day. So your breakfast, lunch, and dinner is your preflop charts. So you want to get preflop correct. Uh, the next thing to study, like moving up the ladder in terms of low hanging fruit. Um, and I'll, I'll give this one and then, um, we'll, we'll perhaps move on. Cause you know, we could talk about studying all day, but I think the next the next like layer thing to study is hand reading. Mm. Um, because if you think about what you're trying to do in every hand you play, you're really trying to identify the range of hands, meaning all the possible hands at any one time that your opponent could have. The better you are at doing that, the better you are at making decisions. Because if you can pinpoint the types of hands your opponent has, even just thinking about a binary um, approach, like are they bluffing or are they not bluffing? If you could just kind of categorize their range based on where you think they're at in the hand, because you're good at hand reading, um, that that's a huge skill to have. And that's a skill that applies to, you know, flop play, turn play, river play, uh, four betting pre-flop or like whatever it is. Right. So if you get better at the nuanced approach of hand reading, that's the next layer of skill that I think, uh, is, is crucial to one success. Uh, we have a free hand reading system. I basically codified the process that I use in every hand I play. Um, and I put it into a system and it's called a hand range funnel. And, it, and it's this idea that like hand ranges get narrower throughout the hand. So they start very wide, like a funnel and they get narrower throughout the hand as people take more action. And I walk you through how to implement that in, um, in your game. So I've had, you know, tons of clients and students go through this process. It's, it's super helpful. It's, it's visual and it makes it really easy to kind of think through the hand in a linear process so that when you're on the river, you can go back to preflop and then like think through the hand preflop, flop, turn river and arrive at the river and then identify their types of ranges. It's totally free. It's a consciouspoker.com. It's a hand reading system. Um, that's like my favorite thing that one of my favorite pieces of content we created uh, <laughs> and, I, and I made it free for everyone. So I think those two things are the best things to study. Um, I won't get into the third one in detail, but um, it would basically be using a poker equity calculator and going equities versus ranges. Mm. Uh, and we have uh, you know premier content at Conscious Poker available for that. If you look at our membership, um, you can look, learn more about that as well. But um, those are some great pieces of content I think will help people. That's fantastic. And I love that you've got uh, all this great free stuff out there. And even just the concept of the funnel, like it, you make it sound very simple because it is simple. But it's, it's not easy, but it's it, but it's not easy. Yes, exactly. Thank you. And it's one of those things like hand ranging. You said it, man. You apply it to every hand of poker that you're going to play. So, you know, totally. talk about something that's going to uh, uh, increase your utility. Um, and and yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to sort of think about that. But hand ranging, I, I completely agree. And that's a skill that the more you do, the better you get at it. So yeah, uh, practice, right. practice, practice, practice. Um, what are some ways that... Um, folks can like practice some of this stuff when they're not act actively playing at the table? Um, one thing I like to do... Well, okay, so uh, I guess it's a two-part question. When they're not at the table, that would be one thing. When they're at the table and not playing, it would be another thing. So um, working with both of those, uh, take the latter. When, when, you're, when you're not actually playing, but you're at the table, uh, that's a great opportunity to um, utilize the, the hand range funnel. Two reasons. One is that you're not, there's no pressure. You're not in the hand. So you're agnostic to the outcome, right? You're indifferent to what happens, right? And if you're wrong, there's no consequence. So it's a really great time to like remove all of the in-game pressure. It's, it's kind of like the idea that like, okay, when you speak in front of your bedroom mirror and you're practicing your keynote, it's pretty easy to kind of get it right. You're confident. You get on stage, you're like, fuck. You know, so it's kind of like that. You're not on stage. And so it's really easy to practice the hand range funnel in a, in a low... Uh, low stress environment. Um, number two 
it's way easier to be objective. Uh, you know, the classic example I like to use is like if you're in an argument with someone, uh, you know, you get heated because you have your own ego, your own emotional standpoint, your own personal values that are being questioned. It's a lot harder to be objective when you're asking when someone's asking advice to you. You don't it's not that you don't care about their personal problems, but it's like easier to see the situation objectively, which is why people have therapists and friends. Right. So um, it's kind of like that in poker. When you're not in the hand, it's easier to identify the range because you're not emotional. You don't care if you win or lose the pot. You're not upset your aces might got might have got cracked. You're just trying to analyze the hand correctly. So the, a real like safe, comfortable time to practice the hand range funnel is when someone else is thinking on the river, you before while they're thinking, right? People tank, let's say they tank for a minute. That means you have a minute of time to be, you should observe the whole hand. So you should start, you know, preflop, always be watching all the hands when you're not playing. It gives you free information too, which is super valuable, but you can also practice this hand reading process and you will be thinking about, okay, what, you know, what happened preflop? What happened on the flop? What happened on the turn? What types of hands is this person betting? Are they likely to be bluffing? What is their value betting range? What is their bluffing range? And would I be calling this bet on the river if I was the the, the guy in the hand that's tanking, right? And so you can really get all this repetitions of experience um, without any consequence. And and if you're wrong, then you could think about why you were wrong. You could see the results at showdown, um, and you can you can re readjust your thought process, right? You can improve and refine your process. So this is all risk-free, right? Which is hard to find in poker. So the second way to do it would be the other part of your question, which would be when you're not playing the game, which would be when you're home. And uh, there's a couple of ways to do that. One is, you know, you could write down all the hands you play during the game. Um, I have my clients do this. They write down all the hands they play during a live poker session. They send that to my team and uh, I create them a strategy video based on all those hands. But you can, you can do that on your own. You can write down all the hands you play and review them at home. And you can go through the hand range funnel, having the data of the hand uh, written down. And then when you're home, you could kind of go through the hand range funnel and say, okay, like, you know, what types of hands should be betting this flop or betting this turn or calling this river, et cetera. Um, And you could also use a poker equity calculator um, or you could review them with a friend, right? If you have like a poker community that you're, you're plugged into or you talk with um, uh, and that, that would be a great way to, to, to run a hand by someone else. And, and ask them their opinion so you can screen for your own uh, potential biases as well. So those are some things you can do. And uh, I think that's really, really, really helpful. Nice. That's great. Well, we like having those kind of uh, uh, that checklist approach. You know, we like having steps that we can follow and turning some of those variables into constants makes it easier, uh, easier for us uh, to learn as we go. Um, so we're coming up. I want to value the, I want to honor the time you've given us here. I've got two more questions and we'll see sure. if uh, Kim has anything else. Uh, Kim made a point very similar to what you just said here. A great way to learn is just to apply that system to every hand you observe, whether you're in it or Kim. not. Yeah, right. you said it, Kim. So um, how, one question that I like to ask some of our guests is, uh, how can someone who is relatively experienced, let's say they're playing live and they're not used to, um, what are, what, what, how are some ways that they might be sort of like identified by the other players at the table as someone who's maybe new to the game? And what are the ways that players might sort of like adjust to that? Do you know what I mean? Like how can they kind of um, either, either protect their image or understand that people are going to make assumptions about them and, and maybe adjust a little. Yeah, we have a, it's funny. Cause I, I did a whole module about this in, uh, in one of our, one of our, one of our programs, because it's like so important. And I think, um, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack, you know, mm. to, to understanding, uh, where you're at. I think, you know, the key is, is, and, and this is kind of one of the points that I make in the, in the, in the course is that it's like, it's not necessarily, um, intrinsically better to have 
you know, one specific image, right? Like there's a lot of people that have different images of the table. There's the, I mean, a few of them are, so there's the old rock, you know, there's the old rock. Everybody's played with an old rock. There's the, the young, aggressive, loose maniac. Everyone's played with one of those. There's the recreational player. That's kind of like, you know, doesn't know what maybe not, 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 not that someone listening is this, but like, there's definitely a variation of a recreational player that's like new to the game, doesn't know what they're doing. And they're like the, the spot. And then there's mm. the solid pro that nobody wants to play against because he's aggressive and tough. Right. So like those are four archetypes that everybody can probably identify someone that's played. They played with someone like that. So I, I mean, various archetypes have different um, optimal strategies. And, and I kind of argue that like, you know, they're, they're, if you play your persona the optimal way, you can have an edge. Whereas if you play your persona the wrong way, uh, you're going to get in trouble. Right. So the old rock can start bluffing but the young loose aggressive player that's like kind of young and crazy like he he might not be well served to bluff right and so so like you could take uh, uh, an individual approach to each image so i think the first the first thing is identifying what your image is and then thinking about how you would play against people with your image because everybody's probably played against one of these four archetypes there's obviously more archetypes but but to not you know belabor it we we just limit it here but everybody's probably played with these four archetypes and everybody would you know probably have an idea of the adjustments they would make against these types of players so if you make these adjustments against the players that we just discussed chances are other people will be i mean obviously thinking players right but other thinking players mm-hmm. will be making similar adjustments to to you if you're one of those four archetypes or whatever archetype that you would adjust to people will adjust the same way that you would adjust to them so starting to think about like the adjustments that people make to you, right? Like for example, uh, you know, nobody calls when the old rock bets. So the strategy would be him to start bluffing. And I have clients that are seniors that I've worked with and I've taught them like how to three bet in certain mm-hmm. spots with certain ranges and never show their hand when they do it or, or bluff raise the river when, you know, a scare card comes or something like that. And like, you know, I <laughs> worked with this one guy and he's, he's been doing this and he just says like, you know, once a session, you know, like let's say once a session, you know, you get to a, a spot on the river and the pot's 40, 50 big blinds, right? You're playing, uh, you know, he plays 510 or whatever, but let, let's say even if you play 2-5, right? And let's say the pot's two, $200 on the river, so it's not that big of a pot. Um, and But it, it happens all the time. And, you know, one, one time you, you, you know, you win an extra two, $300 or you, you bluff raise the river uh, and you win three, $400 and you do that once a session, you know, that's like a half a buy-in or a buy-in a session that you win from one adjustment. And you you don't go back to the well too often, but if you never show your hand, nobody's ever going to think you're you're bluffing, and um, you can just get away with that move. And that's like a huge, you know, a simple adjustment that if executed correctly with your image and the timing is right, you can you can just find a huge exploit there, right? And that's just one adjustment for one player with one image. So I think it's really important to 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 focus on this for people, especially with a recreational image, um, because if you have that like sort of like amateur rec player people are attacking you and you're the spot in the game. Um, I think like the one adjustment I give clients that are in this category is that if you're playing against good solid players, they're very unlikely to bluff you on the river because they probably view you as a calling station. Um, and so I would be overfolding in spots on the river against good pros. Like that's one simple adjustment that I think rec players can make. Um, obviously it depends on your rec image. So it's like a little bit more nuanced than that. It's kind of like saying, oh, you know, men think like this and women think like this. Like, well, it sort of depends. So I don't want to give like too blanket of an answer because poker is very nuanced. But I think that's like a high level uh, adjustment that a lot of people can can th- start to think about. 
Yeah, I do think a lot of uh, the sort of reputation for recreational amateur players is that uh, they call, they're too sticky. Um, they call too much. That's the kind of error that they make. So that, Also that, that they sense. over bluff. So mm. I would be very cautious about like bluffing when you're not representing a large value range. So if you're not representing a lot of strong hands and you're bluffing, like you're going to get looked up even more than a normal player would get looked up. Like if the old tight guy is not representing a lot of hands, but he's still raising you on the river, people are just like, whatever, he must have a set. I'll fold. Right. But you're not going to get that credit. If you're a rec player, you're going to get the opposite uh, um, thought process, which is that you're probably over bluffing. So you're going to get called more often. So, you know, you have to make these adjustments. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, or that you might even be sort of value betting too thinly and kind of value not understanding the the relative value right. of hand or something like right. that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. These are some great answers, Alec. Like, I really Thank feel you. we're getting some great stuff out of here. So one more question. This one's selfish. Um, sure. Let's say you want a satellite ticket into the main event. Um, what okay. are some of the mistakes that you don't want to make as a first-time player in the main event? um that's a good question thank you uh i so i first of all i don't know if it's relevant that you satellited in i think it's it's kind of the same as if you bought in in terms of like you know it's your first time at the main event and what mistakes you don't want to make i think that's kind of independent of whether how you got there um so i'll start with that and then i think you, 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 one thing you probably want to do is that like you know you're a favorite to lose Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's just math. Like, I'm a mm -hmm. favorite to lose. It's not my first time at the main event. I played a lot of poker, but I'm a favorite to lose. Like just because only like 10 or 20% of the people cash. And so even if you're the best player and you cash 25% of the time, you're a favorite to lose. Right. So like you're, you're, you're a favorite to lose. Okay. So, so you, that kind of removes some of the pressure because you're not supposed to win anyway. And it's your first right. time at the main event. So it's even less like you're supposed to win, but I don't think anybody has that pressure uh, going into the main event that they're like supposed to win. So I think what that, you know, going in with that, like first that, that psychological approach, I think could help to like alleviate some of the pressure because I think the mistake that you don't want to make is you don't want to play a different game than your own game. Mm -hmm. So when you play, try to play someone else's game, you're not going to win, right? Like think about tennis. Uh, you think about basketball. Uh, if you try and play someone else's game, like you're, you're a point guard, you're trying to play the center. You're going to lose. You're not going to win, right? You're a point guard. You got to play your own game. If you're, if you're great at, you know, like Steve Nash is great at passing and creating opportunities. He, he, that's how he navigates basketball, right? If you're a tennis player with a big serve and you go to the net and volley, you serve and volley like, you know, Pete Sampras, whatever. So you, you have to play your individual variation of the game of poker and every poker is like super nuanced, even more than like chess where like, people have a sort of similar game in the sense that it's like a very technical game. So everyone has to kind of play the same game theory strategy. Um, even though there's, there is still variation in chess, but poker is much more like an artistic endeavor, like singing, right? Everyone has their own style of singing and songwriter, you know, Taylor Swift is not Kanye West. So you really want to go in there and play the game that got you to the main event. And uh, I always tell my clients, like, you know, if it's the first time at the, you know, a lot of clients want to get ready for the WSOP, it's their first series or, or, or they, you know, they play the series every year and they really want to like go out there, but they know that, you know, they're not a professional and, and whatever. So I always tell them like, you know, you want to feel at the end of that main event that you went out on your terms. It's like what my parents taught me when I was a kid playing baseball. Like it's so much better to swing 
and miss than just like get struck out by standing there and watching the pitch. So like you, you definitely want to be swinging and missing. That doesn't mean, you know, five bet jamming all in, in the first or first round, that's not swinging and missing. That's just like throwing your bat at the, the fucking pitcher. Like, but at the same time, you, you know, you, you want to play your game. So whatever got you to the main event, whatever got you to this point in your poker career, there's certain things you do very well. And you want to go all in on those things in the main, because otherwise you're, 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 you're just drawing dead. Yep, I think that's that's great advice. That's great yeah. advice. And I mean, you know, you can't uh, you can't just fold your way to the money anyway. Um, even you know, to, as deep as the structure is, like I think you know, there there's well, maybe you can. I don't know. Um, you can't fold I, your way to the money. You have to win pots, and you have to like, you, you know, you have to like do the things that you would do in a normal game, right? So like in a normal game, um, you know, poker it pays to be aggressive, and like well timed aggression is is a clear strategy in poker. So like. You know, if there's a spot that you've identified that you can apply pressure, like you need to apply pressure. If there's a spot you identified where you need to be passive and wait, you know, you need to be passive and wait. You need to be, you know, uh, aware of the nuances of uh, your table. And sometimes it's time to open up your game because of the stack sizes and the positions and the players. And other times it's time to just camp for four hours and wait, <laughs> you know, but that's all part of it. But uh, you definitely have to go in there with that confidence and just be like, I'm going to play my own game and whatever happens, happens. I'm going out swinging. I think that's really important. That's great, man. Well, um, I'm definitely going to go out swinging when we get down there. We'll see. We'll Good see luck. what else happens along the way. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, all. for sure. Good luck to you, man. Wish um, you so what, uh, what, where can people reach you? Obviously conscious, but I mean, where, where's the favorite place for people that haven't met you before to reach out? Is it Twitter? Is it the website? Uh, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, I guess it depends what, um, what you're after. I mean, for awesome strategy content. I think consciouspoker.com, we have blogs and uh, a bunch of resources, products and services. Um, YouTube.com slash conscious poker. We have, I think, 600 videos that are all free on poker strategy that are all, all made by me. Um, and so there's probably a video on any subject you want to learn. Tournaments, cash games. We have a, a blog post on consciouspoker.com, how to get ready for the WSOP, uh, a video about that as well. So like, there's a lot of content on there. Um and then, you know, I'm on all the social medias. I'm just at Alec Torelli. So like, um, and it's, it's a mixture of poker content. I talk a lot about like ideas in like society. And then like cryptocurrency is a huge uh, interest and passion of mine. I have a, a crypto YouTube channel as well. Um, so if you just, uh, it's called Cryptorelli, like crypto and Torelli. So nice. C-R-Y-P-T-O-R-E-L-L-I. Um, so that, that's a uh, growing channel. I just started that uh, a few months ago. Um, so I share a lot of crypto content on there. I have a Substack newsletter. Um, so our conscious poker mailing list, um, is, is great. We have like, uh, uh, email newsletter that goes out about like poker tips, latest content, uh, poker, you know, uh, ideas, meetups, um, whatever, a lot of poker content in, in the newsletter. So just subscribe to consciouspoker.com, enter your email. Uh, it's free. And like, that'll kind of keep you in our ecosystem and keep you updated when new content comes out. And then I have a crypto newsletter as well. Um, AlecTorelli.com is more about me personally. Uh, and then like I said, I'm just Alec Torelli on all the socials. So nice. Well, hopefully if people are listening, they'll uh, give you a little heads up and say, thanks for coming on the show. And that, uh, yeah, sure. That Come say hi. I'm like very active on social on the link in my Twitter is all my, uh, on, on my link tree in my Twitter, my Twitter bio has all my links. So anything you forgot or want, um, poker or crypto related is all there. Nice. All yeah. right. Well, thank you again, Alec Torelli. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And I think we're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff coming out of this for our listeners. So um, thanks, everybody. Appreciate your support.
See yeah, guys. well, and uh, let me see. I guess I want to thank our uh, sponsors again, Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack and Casino and Website Amp. Uh, Kim Pet Vet Kilroy for joining us in the chat here. And all you, the uh, listeners that make it happen. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again real soon.